In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. And I want to start off this morning by sharing the imagery that was imagery that I've inherited that has mostly stuck with me through a lot of my life. I was sitting in church, it was a Sunday night, and it was memorable because all the lights were off. Typically, the lights are on in church. And the teacher that night was teaching there in the dark, and all you could hear was the, was the sound echoing off the walls. And you couldn't see barely anything. And then as the teacher was teaching, he, he had a lighter, and he lit the lighter, and he lit a candle. And it was amazing in that dark church building how much difference that single candle made. You could see his face clearly. You could see the outline of the pews. You could see the shadowy reflection of the people who were sitting near you. And the teacher said, this is what Jesus meant. What it's like to be a candle in a dark world. And as I reflect on that image... I realize in some ways it biased and prejudiced how I read the words of Jesus when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. And so I want to try and introduce another image that I think might be a little bit more true to what Jesus is trying to paint a picture of. And it's the story of three Canadians, David Goodlett, Al Nash, and Arthur Weaver. They were members of the Canadian Air Force, and in November 1942, they had the job of transporting an A-20 bomber from Newfoundland to England. And in order to do that, they had to stop in Greenland to refuel as they were going to head on to England. When they approached Greenland, they found what many pilots had experienced in the air, which is Greenland is known for this, this thick fog, this haze, what pilots called flying through milk. And they found themselves flying through milk and they got disoriented. Eventually, looking at the fuel gauge, they realized they weren't going to be able to get to where they were trying to get to. And so they just brought it down on the frozen tundra of Greenland. They decided that they would then try to walk to where they believed the station was. And you have these, these below zero freezing, minus 40-ish sort of temperatures. And for eight days, they've been hiking, trying to get somewhere to safety. And a plane overhead spots them. And the plane goes back, gets supplies in a note. They drop off some supplies with like parkheads and food and things like that. And they leave a note saying, continue heading in the direction you're heading, and you're going to reach the ocean. We're going to send a, a boat an ice cutter to come into rendezvous with you there. The plane tracked their progress, and sure enough, on the fifth day, so now these 13 days after having been stranded, they arrived at night to the coast where they were supposed to be. And so the, the U.S. Um, Coast Guard had dispatched the Northland, and the Northland was an ice cutter that had very specific instructions. Because of the thickness of the ice, they had one opportunity to go in, pull the guys out, and get out. And they could not stay for very long, otherwise the ice would kind of encapsulate them and they wouldn't be able to get there. And so as the Northland approached at night, they went to the shore where they were instructed that the men were, and they were using their powerful spotlights and scanning across the horizon, and of course they never saw any of the three men. The three men, for their part, had a lighter, which was the only thing, and they were lighting the lighter trying to get them to see where they were, and it didn't work. Eventually the captain of the Northland said, we're going to have to go back out and the men realized at that point, either they needed to do something drastic or they were going to die there. So what they did was they took off their parkas and they put them in a pile and they lit the parkas on fire. And fortunately, there was one person on the Northland who was still watching with his binoculars and he saw the light and he shouted, I see a light. And what you recognize and you realize is that a single flame, 
was not powerful enough to be seen from the shore, but that accumulated flame of all of their jackets on fire was enough to let them know where they were. Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hid, which is different than saying a candle on a hill cannot be hid. In fact, I think if I took a candle and I went up onto the rims and I held my candle at night, you would find it difficult to locate exactly where I was. The thing about a city is a city is a cluster and a collection of lights. And what Jesus is saying is what is needed to be a witness is not a single flame, but instead a cluster and a collection of lights who come together in an area that that's what's impossible to keep hidden and to be seen. The more coats there were for the men, the greater light there is. We don't know whether one parker would have been enough. We don't know whether two parkers were enough. But we knew they could not see that single flame, but they could see the fire from the three parkas. In a similar way, I think that this is the imagery that Jesus is trying to teach us, is that we as a community of people, gathering our lights together in a cluster, that's what Jesus says, is to be the witness to people. I think that understanding of what Jesus is teaching also fits well with kind of the whole missional movement in the Bible. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes and just briefly go through the missional movement that you find in the scriptures. The first phase we see of this movement is that God wants all individuals to live their lives in full submission to his lordship. Uh, You find in the early chapters of Genesis, you have stories of individuals, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Uh, Noah, Abraham, I mean, all these individuals are deciding, are they going to submit to God's way or are they going to refuse to submit to God's way? But then we find that as individuals accept God's lordship, they are formed into groups of people or into communities. That begins as God chooses Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to all people. And those descendants eventually came to a group of a size that in book of Exodus, they're called a people and a nation. And God forms them into a nation, and he wants them to live in a relationship in a certain way. That's why when you have the Ten Commandments, the first four are primarily about how individuals live in a relationship with God, and the last six are about how individuals live in a relationship with one another. And so God wants them to form into certain kinds of communities. And then the third thing that we see is that God has a concern for this community, and the reason is twofold. First of all, God knows living in healthy communities is better for people. It leads to flourishing. It leads to life in abundance. But the other thing is that Jesus intends, or God intends, that the community to be a witness to those outside. That that those who are living outside of this community, people would look and would say, there's something different about how these people are living. And so God takes Israel and asks Israel to be a reflection of what it means to live together in harmony as people who are obedient to God. And all through the Old Testament, there's lots of different images used of this witness. But in Romans chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says that the Jews believe themselves to be a light to those who are living in darkness. As Christopher Wright says, God's mission involves God's people living in God's way in the sight of the nations. And then Jesus comes and he says, you are the light of the world. A city hidden on a hill cannot be built on a hill cannot be hidden. Paul takes this image and he applies it then to the church. Ephesians 5.8, he says, you are in the Lord, in, in the Lord you are light, live as children of light. Philippians 2.15, shine like stars in the world. So we as the church, the community of the people of God, we are God's people living in God's way in the sight of the nations. See, this is our last lesson on the church. 
And I want to go back full circle to somewhere where we began. One of the things that I shared in that very first lesson is that our witness depends on more than our individual witness or testimony, but our witness depends on the lines of fellowship that connect us to each other. And we, we talked about the difference between the question, how does she or he act, to the question, how do they interact? And the witness is seen in the ways that we interact with one another, the types of relationships that we have. And so as a community, we are to be a unique community in our world. Some of the words that have been proposed to describe what kind of a community we are, we are a peculiar people. We are an alternative community. We are resident aliens. We live with countercultural relationships. So here's a recipe for us as a congregation to be witnesses to our community. I've stolen it from a guy named Timothy Keller. But the three ingredients for being a positive witness to our community is first of all, we have to be unlike others. And then ironically, we need to be like others in certain ways. And then third, we need to be able to engage with others. So let's look at this first ingredient. The Christian community is to be unlike others. It is different. It is unique. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus uses light in different ways and different um, elements. And yet one of the things that's consistent in each of the three ways he talks about light is that the light must be different than the darkness. Um, I, I, I thought about just being silly and putting a picture of what darkness looks like in darkness. And then I thought, you guys are smart enough to figure that out, right? I mean, if light is not contrasted to the darkness, it's not visible, it's not seen. So for light to function as light, it must be unlike its surrounding environment. When Paul addresses the church in Ephesus, he highlights how they are unlike their former selves, and because of that, they are unlike the other communities around them. We read this already, but in Ephesians 5.8, actually we read something later. For you were once in darkness... But now in the Lord, you are light. Live as children of light. What Paul is saying is that you used to, as an individual, live in darkness. Now that you are in the light, you have to live in relationship in new and in different ways. Here's what the old life looked like in Ephesians 4.31, where Paul is instructing them to put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. So to live as lights. It means we live as a community that is absent of bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander. And yet those things seem to be very natural. These are social sins. These are not the sins that you find an individual by himself, but when you put groups of people together, these are the kinds of sins that tend to come out. And the truth is they are very natural. I, I, I connected this with a, a picture I saw recently at the Arnheim Zoo in the Netherlands. There's a group of chimpanzees that were living in captivity, and the boss of the uh, group of chimps was a chimp named Mama, and Mama ran the show. Eighteen months after Mama had been running the show, the zookeepers decided they would introduce three new male monkeys. And Mama got everyone riled up against the three and so forth. About the first two months that those three monkeys were there, they would go on top of a barrel and all the other monkeys would come and they would hit them and they would spit on them and they would try to bite them for two months straight. That's what happens naturally when you put a group of people together, isn't it? It's easy to figure out how to bite and fight and to chew on each other. And yet, I would hope as a Christian community, we would have a moral standard that's a little bit higher than chimpanzees. Because we are called to display something different than bitterness and wrath and anger and slander 
and malice. And it's not just common in chimps. I think it's common in us as people too, isn't it? That sometimes we make things competitive when they really shouldn't be. I told you earlier about the Northland that went and rescued these three Canadians. And the irony was that at the same time these three Canadians were missing, there were also two American planes that had crashed, that they were simultaneously looking for those planes. And historians looking back are asking the question, why didn't the Northland get involved in rescuing those men, some of whom perished there in Greenland? And, and the best explanation that people have looking at the incident is described as competition amongst military branches. See, the U.S. Air Force was responsible for the rescue of these Air Force planes that had crashed. And the Air Force had a new station there in Greenland, so they had to justify, this is why it's worth paying all this money. So if they call up the Coast Guard and say, hey, will you go get our guys, then they're afraid the top brass is going to say, hey, we should give more money to the Coast Guard and not to the Air Force. And so the natural way, sometimes when you put groups of people together, is they're bitter, there's wrangling, and there's arguments, there's fighting, and there is malice. And I think if we're being honest, we've probably seen it in the church too. Behaviors that are behaviors from the old way of living, but not from the new way of living. To be witnesses, we have to live in ways that are unlike those around us. So then what specifically, what does Christian conduct look like in the midst of a community of people? If we are to be unlike, what is our counter way of living? And Paul describes that in Ephesians 4.32, when he says that we should be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. See, to live as children of the light means we live with certain unique behaviors. Paul is really encouraging us to ask the question, as people who are forgiven, how does that change how I want to relate to other people? Who bother me? Who frustrate me? Who upset me? And Paul says this is the way that we live, with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And I want to just look at one of these as an illustration of how we can be unlike those around us. You may remember the story from October 2nd, 2007, when a man entered an Amish school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, and as he left, five people were dead from the altercation. And that was nationally the leading news story for a few hours until the Amish community came out and immediately said, we forgive the man who did this, and we forgive his family. And then all of a sudden, the national dialogue became about forgiveness. And many people were upset and frustrated and bothered, saying it was too soon, saying there was no justice, saying that the Amish community needed to do something different. And regardless of whether you think that act of forgiveness was appropriate or not, the principle is this. They did something that was unlike what the larger culture thought should happen in the ways that they chose to forgive. And people took note of it. What would it look like for us to be a community who in terms of our kindness, in terms of our tenderheartedness, and in terms of our forgiveness would make people in the world say something is different with these people? John says it in this way, whoever says I am in the light while hating a brother or sister is still in darkness. Whoever loves a brother or a sister lives in the light and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. What I want to encourage you to do as you make decisions as individuals, we make those decisions asking the question, what will my actions do for a testimony for this church to our community? 
Is it a conduct that is more likened to the Bible? Or is it a conduct that is more likened to a world in which there's bitterness and malice and wrath? The second ingredient in becoming a witnessing community is that in certain ways we must be like others. Don't you like it when a preacher preaches one thing and then he preaches the exact opposite thing and just leaves you confused? Notice how Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father in heaven. In order for them to see and respect your good works, they must see those good works as something good. See, every culture has certain innate ways in which they have a morality that can align with Christianity. There are certain ways where it contrasts with, it doesn't agree with Christianity. But our job as Christians is not to just do the opposite of what everyone does. I mean, we're not a culture where we say, everybody here wears blue jeans, so I'm going to wear red jeans. No, there are certain ways whereby we can be like our culture. Um, Our culture is one in that people believe you should not do harm to children. So as Christians, we cannot do harm to children, and people will respect us for it. There are points in which we want to be like our culture in a way that can enhance the message that we have to give. Remember what Paul says to Timothy when selecting elders in 1 Timothy 3.7, he must be well thought of by outsiders. You say, well, hey, I thought you were supposed to be unlike them, and yet there's something about that person that even outsiders should respect, something that they should see as honorable. I think a guiding principle for us could be this. Be like others in as many ways as possible in order to highlight the ways that you are unlike them. That may mean in our witness we eat the kinds of food they eat. We wear the kinds of clothes they wear. We engage in the kind of recreation they engage in. We sometimes even watch the Super Bowl to show that in many ways we are normal, but in other ways we are very particular in the world. As Paul says in Colossians 4, 5, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. We make decisions about what will honor God and honor Christ, but we also make decisions about what will enhance our reputation in the community. Of course, we don't do that by compromising our values. We don't do that by compromising God's word. But we realize that there is a value in being relatable to other people. Now the third ingredient to being a witnessing community, there must be some engagement with others. Look at each of these elements of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. First, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. You build a city on a hill in order for it to be displayed to others. Uh, Nobody builds a city on a hill so that it can hide from others. And so there is this sense of there's engagement, there's desire to be seen and to be witnessed. Or in verse 15, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. A light is not created to be segregated or to be hid or to be put away in a corner. It is there it exists to be engaged in the darkness and to have a positive influence on the darkness. Or in the same way, let your light shine before others. Where should the light be? The light should be in a way that is visible and accessible to other people. So the goal of a witnessing community is to let their light shine before others. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be a worldly audience. Jesus came into the world, and we too go into the world. And some will say, but I thought James said that you should keep yourself unstained from the world. And he does. 
James also says when you're conducting business, when you're out making your money, you're going to do it in this way. So in other words, we are living peculiar and particular lives in the midst of others and in the midst of an audience that needs to see the light. I think that on an individual level, this kind of engagement is easier. But on a corporate level, I think this is an area of growth for us as a church body. That we as a church body need to continue to find ways to be a light into our community. I've often illustrated it in this way. If you went to 10th and Grand, which in case you're not familiar with the geography, is just a block south of here, and you stopped the first 25 people and you said, um, what, do you, what do you think about the Billings Church of Christ? My guess is probably 95% of people say the what? There's something that they've never heard of. The reason I imagine that is as I meet people, and I talk about where I go to church, 90 plus percent of people say, uh, where's that? Never heard of it. Um, and then do you know what I have to do? I say it's across the street from Michelotti Sawyer. It wasn't until this week I realized how ironic that answer is. I was watching an advertisement um, for, a, for a local business, and local business says, you know, we're located right next door too. I thought, man, that's a terrible marketing strategy. Like, your location is based on someone else's location. Like, you know they're better known, and so you just use their publicity. And I thought, isn't that what I do when every time I tell people we're across the street from Michelotti Sawyer's? And the point, of course, is not people need to know how to locate us on a map. The point is that for us to be engaged in the culture means that people are aware that this is a body of believers who are doing good and positive things in the community, and they see that light. It's a growth area for us, that God continues to call us into that point of exposure to a world that needs to receive the mission of God. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. In order for us to do that, we must be a community that is unlike others. And then in other ways, a community that is like others. And finally, we are a community that will engage with others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Um, just to confirm, we have a slide for that. So, okay, so we're good there. Um, I'm going to be in the back. Some relatives will be back. If you want to come back during the song, if you want somebody to pray with you, um, just talk about where you're at in your spiritual life. You've got that opportunity. And then, of course, we'll continue into the rest of our services after that song. But let's go ahead and stand together as we sing this song.